Hi, this is Marcos. I'm one of the hosts of the Elector podcast. For this second episode, we have an interview we recorded on April 17th on a warm Miami evening while smoking cigars. So yeah, that is the sound of crickets you're going to be hearing in the background. This interview will likely stand out for me as one of the most important conversations I have had the privilege to sit in on, for personal reasons, of course, but also because this story is one that I feel needed to be recorded because it cannot be forgotten. This was a solemn occasion because the person I am interviewing is my cousin, Nelda Perullero. It's a story about a hero as told by his daughter, the tragic and mysterious events surrounding his death in a time of unrest in Miami, and how his death impacted a family and community. It's an intriguing story about the Cuban Revolution, the Bay of Pigs invasion, FBI cover-ups, and much, much more. This interview is in Spanglish, in typical Miami fashion, so if you're not familiar with it, that's okay. Just stick with it. It is also completely unedited, so you can get the big picture of the conversation as if you were there. So just take your time, enjoy a cigar, and more importantly, hear this amazing story from the exiled South. As the torciadores, aka the cigar rollers, quietly rolled their cigars, and the despaliadoras, aka the strippers, stripped the stems from the tobacco leaves. They were entertained, informed, inspired, and enlightened by literature and the daily news. So began the tradition of El Lector, the reader. This is the El Lector podcast, stories and cigars from the exiled South. We hope you'll enjoy it. So this is the Elector Podcast, uh, Stories and Cigars from the Exiled South. I'm sitting here with uh, Nelda Perullero, who is my cousin. Say hi, Nena. Hello. I refer to her as Nena. Yeah. Glad you're here. And I also have here our mutual friend, Mr. Joe Cardona. Saluda. Hello, and thank you for having me. Glad you're here, man. This is a a really good night for me. I'm happy to have you both here. Um, And thank you to your family for all the wonderful wonderful hospitality and dinner. Mm -hmm. So um, just by way of background, uh, Nena, would you say something about yourself? Tell us what you you do, what you did. Um, I'm retired now. I worked for 25 years as a police officer with the Miami-Dade Police Department. And um, I'm retired, kind of. I'm still in the mix doing a few different things. Cool. Cool. How many years? 25 years. 25 years. Wow, that's great. And uh, we also have with us Joe. Joe, I'll let you do your introduction. I can say a few things, but I'll let you uh, Yeah, I make uh, films, documentary films, primarily documentary films, and I write a column for the uh, Miami Herald. Excellent. Well, it's good to have you both here with us. When I want to know something about a specific piece of Cuban history, I don't Wikipedia it. I, I call Joe, and we get a cigar, and uh, that's how I find out uh, all, the, all the gory details about Midgets and things like that. <laughs> that's, that's referring to no, a that's conversation. No, that's, <laughs> that's my genre. Yeah, that's her genre. So, and, and we're here tonight, we're smoking cigars. And I would like for each of us to say what we're smoking. If you could. Well, Nelda brought me and my father. 
mm-hmm. which I'm very proud and thankful that she did. And it's a Pepin Garcia cigar, and it's a Those fine are, cigar. Yes. I know that that's uh, one of your favorites that here, is. and I'm smoking a Tudo Fuente short story. Mm. And why is that? Why'd you pick no. that one? I always like the, the short story. It's, yeah? it's, has a, it's very mild. I like that. Mm. Okay. That's good. And, and I'm smoking a Flor Dominicana, La, La Flor very, Dominicana. Very good cigar. A double Ligero with a chisel, which is, this is my, one of my favorite cigars, go-to cigars. One of them. Uh, have, I have a couple. But this is one of my favorites. I'm, I'm probably going to pick up uh, one of the Toranos that I bought later on. Uh, what, so tell me, what is, what's, what, you said this is one of your favorite cigars? Yes. The Arturo Fuente? Yeah. They, I, I like most of the Arturo Fuente cigars. So his whole line is very good. Mm. And, um, but I usually, I'm usually in a hurry when I smoke, so I've gotten used to the short stories. Yeah. Because <laughs> they don't take up too much of my time. Unfortunately, when I smoke, I don't smoke relaxed. I'm smoked to... Let me relax myself, but I gotta go. Right, right, right. So I end up with a short story. So I, I know a few <coughs> ladies who who enjoy cigars. Not many though. When did you When did you start smoking cigars? Wow. Um, well, give them your background with cigars. Right? Yeah, you know, my mother's side of the family was is in the cigar business. Mm-hmm. They're in the business with Arturo Fuente. Yeah. So um, Sosa Cigars. Uh, we have a place. They have a place up in Disney, and. My background with cigars, it started way back when. I mean, when I was in second grade, uh, the school bus would drop me off at La Tabaqueria on 8th Street. Yeah. And I learned how to roll cigars. I learned how to press cigars. I learned how to um, work with the leaves, everything, a little bit of everything, how to pack them up. Nice. So that started in second grade. And your grade. mother your And mother my mother worked there for 58 years. Rolling cigars. Uh, packing cigars. Packing cigars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, but your mother worked in, in the cigar industry in Cuba too, right? Yes. Yeah. She worked with... Um, H. Upman. Oh, H. Upman. She worked at H. Upman? H. Upman. My dad worked for H. Upman, too. Yeah. My mother got him the job there. She, oh. My mom got practically the whole family in there. Yeah. So. In Ada. Who mm-hmm. knew? Who knew? I didn't know any of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's uh, H. Upman. Wow. And then she came here and, and she started working right away for No, not Sosa right away. Or? It took um, a couple years for her to be able to get her side of the family over here. And once they got here, it took a couple years for them to set up Sosa Cigars. And it was off of 8th Street, and I want to say about um, just east of the of I-95 there. Yeah. It was the heart of Little Havana back then. Just, right, right. And um, right. The, she started working there when I was in um, first grade. Cool. And worked there for 58 years. Well, and you learned how to roll cigars in a whole night. That was I summer camp that. for me. That was after school for me. We'd get there. We'd sit there. Uh, doing our homework. Once the homework was done, ponte a trabajar. And uh, my mother had an, awesome. an aunt by the name of Tiamparo, and Tiamparo would stretch out the cigar leaves. But as she did that, she would rock back and forth in a chair. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was part of the job. So yeah. I'd sit there next to her, and I'd be rolling up, you know, stretching out the cigar leaves. And I'd be. And to this day, if I sit in one of those uh, tauretes, Taurete, yeah. my habit is to rock back and forth on it. Oh, my gosh. Incredible. It's and it's because I remember Tiamparo would do that all the time. That's the coolest thing. Yeah. That's awesome. What about you, Joe? When did you, what was your first uh, cigar experience? Did you throw up? No, I did not. Mm-hmm. I, I went to school at the University of South Florida, and I stumbled into Ybor City. Mm. And, uh, I love Ybor City. Yeah, and yeah. I was taken in by some folks at La Unión Martí Maceo, who were Cuban. And I was a wayward Cuban kid going to USF without his family at 17. And they took me in, and I used to go there on Sundays and play dominoes and... And um, I, I picked up the habit, and I came home, I remember, a while later, and uh, brought cigars with me. Mm. And so I remember lighting a cigar. <laughs> my parents were like, what in the world are you doing? My father didn't smoke cigars. My grandfather smoked cigars. Right. 
Um, and when I was a kid, he'd send me next door to the cafeteria to buy little padrones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was around cigars my whole life, but it wasn't until I went to college. Yeah. And that was, you know, two or three years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just graduated just a couple the other years day, ago. That's just right. the other day. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it's um, my my first wife. I said this on another recording. Not sure if it's going to make it, so I'll repeat it again. My first cigar was a Swisher Sweet. Oh wow! Right from the uh, drugstore. Yeah, right from mm-hmm. the drugstore. You did throw up, yeah. <laughs> and I did throw up. No, I didn't throw up, but I was just like, this, this tastes like it could taste a lot better. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then I, that's then. And how the rest old were you when you picked that up? That was in my twenties, early twenties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I picked it up because I was, it wasn't because I wanted to smoke a cigar. It was because I, I was like, man, this is part of our history. Yeah, except not Swisher yeah, not, Sweets. Not Swisher, <laughs> no. but that's what I, I didn't know, I didn't know yeah. about the boutique cigars or about the, uh, the ones that the, like Carreta you could buy under the counter, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so, yeah, not Swisher Sweets, but that was my first one. And then I think I, after that, I worked my way up to Punch, Punch Cigars, which have made a comeback, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. And... Um, yeah, and then in, in Puerto Rico, I, I really got into it when I went to work there for us. Uh, when Racky was a baby, I had to go work over there. And that's when I started chain smoking him. And I'm sure <laughs> Ceci really appreciated it. Oh, yes, the, yes, yes. Yes, I see it in her face yeah. and her hair and that's right, yeah, yeah. kids. And Take a shower. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, so this is welcome again to my table, guys. I'm, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, and... As I kind of told you before, Miami Miami has a million stories, and we want to tell a few good ones here. And um, we, we're about telling compelling stories that tell us about who we are and that shed light on the history of this city that we live in and other and the people that live here and how it's connected to some weird stories. Like we've been talking about rabbit trails and stuff that lead us to other places and interesting facts and anecdotes. But tonight, we're going to want to hear the story about um, one of my heroes, um, and I'm sure a hero to all of us here because we've all heard stories that are legendary. Uh, even Racky has heard me tell stories about him. Um, that uh, this is your father, Nena. Yes. Uh, Joseito, as we know him. Uh, his, his full name is Juan Jose Perullero. And it's a Cuban story. And it's a, it's a story of, uh, of a, a man who fought for a lot of things. So what I... For me, he was my uncle, but he was like uh, one of, I mean, it was like my, my grandparents, my dad, and him, and Braulio, mm-hmm. yeah? And these were like, wow, these, are, these were like heavyweights in the family. I can't forget Milagros and, yeah. and Rogelio, too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but for but Jose, Ito, Jose was, uh, was definitely a, a standout figure. So why, why don't you just start by telling us where, you know, give us some background on who he was and why we're telling the story maybe, and then we can go from there. Well, my dad was president of the Brigade 2506 uh, seven times. He, I grew up, my first memories are of uh, growing up at meetings de la brigada, and they would be talking about how, you know, vamos a regresar una Cuba libre, and all this, and I remember, I, I distinctly remember falling asleep on my mother's lap and listening to people, because we would go to these meetings constantly, listening to people talking about the liberation of, of Cuba, and that was basically how everything started. My whole life has been around yeah. that. Now, just for background, mm-hmm. uh, Brigade 2506, what, what is that? The Bay of Pigs um, veterans that... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, went to the Bay of Pigs, and after they got back, they started the association. The, um, it's 2506 because that was the first man that was killed from the brigade 
first mm-hmm. one to die, so they used his ID number, which was 2506. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know that mm-hmm. part. Wow. So um, the, he was uh, he fought in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, he sent my mom, my sister and I was uh, two years old. My sister was three. He sent word to my mom that he needed he, she needed to take us out of there, of Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother had no idea where he was at. He had been here in Miami. She didn't know that at that time he was already in Central America training for the Bay of Pigs invasion. Mm. So he told her to get a hold of the Episcopal Church in our town, and she went there, and they had all the paperwork ready for us, got us in a plane, flew us uh, from Havana to Jamaica. We were in Jamaica for in Kingston for three days, and then we came to Miami. When my mother arrives in Miami expecting to find my father here, there were some friends of his, uh, Raul y Maria Alberro, that greeted us at the airport and said, no, Joseito está in Guatemala training wow. for the Bay of Pigs invasion. So that was a shocker for my mom. She had no family here or anything, and she's thinking she's going to hook up back with my dad here, and he wasn't even here. Oh. So um, then the Bay of Pigs happened. and So you were here before the Bay of Pigs? We were here before the Bay of Pigs. Okay, I'm confused. Okay, so yeah, yeah this is, I'm piecing all this together, folks. I don't know. I've you know. Yeah. The, this is fascinating to me. So you were, that, was, that would have been what year? 61. 61 you arrived here yeah 61 wow okay all right so he's he got you guys out and he's going to cuba right he told my mom tu eres la madre y el padre de estas niñas y tú eres responsable por ellas Hmm. tú tienes que sacar a mis hijas de ahí Hmm. and my mom with a a fourth grade education no english no family no one that she knew here was greeted at the airport by these two friends of my father's who she had no idea who they were wow so She's a brave woman. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so she's here. You guys are here. Right. How old are you? Two. Two. And Jose, Jose your father, Joseito, goes to was in Guatemala training for right, the but he goes. Invasion. But then he the invasion happens. Right. Can you tell us anything about that? He went to the invasion. the The first memory I have of my dad was during the prisoner exchange. Uh, for the Bay of Pigs prisoners, I remember we were at Dinner Key Auditorium. I remember a Christmas tree because I had never seen such a big Christmas tree in my life. And I remember men were, uh, walking across the stage, the theme from A Bridge Over the River Kwai playing. Yeah. And then my father came and I remember I was so impressed because here's this guy that was picking up both my sister and I at the same time. My mother couldn't carry both of us at the same time. And I can I can just remember so clearly the feeling of my dad picking us up and I'm thinking, wow, who is this Superman that's able to pick us both up yeah. at the same time? Yeah. And the whole family was there. Yeah. 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 So but uh so that's when we is that when um when we all, when my my parents arrived as By well. By that time, yeah. your parents had arrived. We had yeah. uh, Rafael was here. We had several family members yeah. here. We had a, a pretty right. big about ten, fifteen of our family was already here. Yeah, and they did, all waited at dinner key for him. Right. Did Joseito? Did your your dad tell you stories later on about what the about what the invasion was like? No, 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 not at all. I remember I would pepper my dad with questions. Uh, after dinner, I would sit down on the dining room table in front of my dad. My dad would sit at the head of the table, and I'd, I'd be asking him questions like, Daddy, ¿qué tú hiciste? ¿Tú mataste a algún hombre? And all this. Y me decía, las niñas no hacen ese tipo de preguntas. Ah, okay. And he would never, ever talk to me about any of that. Wow, wow. Yeah. Well, I want to ask Joe to interject here, because you shared a story with me that was really cool about my uncle that just uh, it brought me to tears when you told me the first time. Uh, something that you had heard. I don't know how, how how it was relayed to you, but Joe is 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 a friend of ours, or a good friend of both of ours, and um, has had 
in his uh, filmmaking career and as a friend, he's also done some interviews. You've interviewed Nelda before as well. So I don't think on camera. I don't think. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. Did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you can share something, uh, I I think um, you're talking about the story that Dudokovo told me, hmm. and I interviewed Dudokovo, and um, Dudokovo was much younger. He was one of the youngest guys to participate in 2506. And he told me Juan Jose was like a, a father figure to him. Mm. In fact, Juan Jose insisted he not go to the invasion. Right. To the very moment that they embarked towards the beachhead, he was telling this kid in his mind, stay back. Yeah. When he realized, and I, and I think Gobo may have even lied to him somehow and snuck on a barge. I mean, so he realized now he's got this kid with him. So the whole time he's telling him stay back because he felt responsible for this young man. And so this is now uh, probably the darkest moments for these men when they find themselves kind of stuck there and they're out of ammunition. And so uh, they haven't slept. They haven't eaten. They've been under a lot of stress and under fire because by now they haven't received air cover, so there are MiGs flying the skies. They realize something's gone awry, and the Castro forces are closing in on them. So in great Juan Jose Peruero fashion, Cole tells me, well, what do you do when you're outmanned, you have no weapons, and uh, you know, no, no, no ammunition, you're out of ammunition, and you're tired and hungry? Well, you attack. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, Juan Jose told him, please stay here. I'll come back for you because he didn't want him. And he told his men, mount your bayonets. We're attacking. Yeah. And um, I mean, (laughs) you know, that's uh, there are a lot of stories. And then there's Peruero, right? Right. (laughs) right. um, And so I think what's important is to understand what the whole thing meant to these men. Um, I've interviewed people on both sides of 25 of, of the Bay of Pigs. You know, I, I, I was also fortunate to interview men and nurses and stuff who tended to the wounded. And mm. I remember interviewing uh, Steve Bovo, Commissioner Steve Bovo's dad, who was a pilot. And uh, initially in the invasion, uh, once they realized that they were invading at the Bay of Pigs, um, there was one road in and one road out. And so... The World War II bombers, which was piloted by the Cuban pilots, right. Bobo being one of them, um, they sent El Comandante Gallego Fernandez's men in school buses mm. down this. Now, they had guys on the ground who ID'd these men with weapons inside the school buses, so they radioed in and told the planes, these are soldiers. But Bobo said to me, that um, after the first run of bombs, he realized um, whatever the ideology was, whether right or wrong or in between, these were Cubans like him, yeah. and they bled like him, and they looked like him. So it's really the saddest day. Any type of civil war, any war is horrible, yeah. but a civil war is especially brutal because you're, you're fighting amongst brothers yeah. and sisters. And, uh, and I think anybody who partook in that uh, regardless of the ideology, again, is marked for life. And uh, pretty much anybody who's ever seen combat like that is marked for life. Yeah. All right, let's hold on a second. Uh, Surveillance. That's for effect. 
<laughs> Those aren't sound effects, folks. That's a real helicopter. Talking about war, over. we've got helicopters yeah. in the background. <laughs> I get the nom flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> Can we get a World War II bomber sound effect? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, tell us a little bit more, just for historical perspective, on the because I, I think it's a story that needs to, a part of the story that needs to be told. Um, what happens to these men when they're captured? Yeah, well, they have uh, uh, Fidel Castro has this. Um, I must also say that my dad's great uncle, uh, Jose Emilio Cardona, was the political leader of the brigade mm. and was the guy who would be would have been president had they taken the beachhead. They would have declared that free Cuba. Emilio Cardona would have petitioned the United Nations, and the United States would have said, "Okay, we're going to defend free Cuba." Wow, I didn't which know. was a beachhead. Yeah. Um, the whole thing was a fiasco, mm. and it went downhill fast. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of stuff written and talked about um, as to the failures of the Bay of Pigs. But what is really interesting and important to note is regardless of the political failures or regardless of all that, there's the men and women who were affected. Yeah. And um, the men were rounded up, including Pepito Miró, Jose Miro Cardona's son, who fought in the invasion, yeah. they were all taken captive, including Juan Jose Peruero, um, and they were jailed. They were uh, put on Cuban television and then taken off Cuban television because <laughs> they were afraid the viewers might empathize with right. these guys. Yeah. So they were initially put on TV and they then were they their decided... Neighbors they, or they, nephews exactly. or, yeah. And they were very courageous in their, um, in their defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody buckled, nobody cried, nobody asked for forgiveness, nobody... Um, they were convicted in their beliefs. And uh, so they were jailed, and I think it was two years, a year and a half, two mm -hmm. years. And then there's the famous exchange for money and uh, right. baby and food medicine. and yeah. medicine, and, uh, and uh, then these men came home. And then I think they lived an even more frustrating reality because uh, then they were, in essence, handcuffed mm -hmm. and had to idly sit by and watch as Cuba fell deeper and deeper into the dictatorship, totalitarian dictatorship, which by then, because of their the failure at the Bay of Pigs, not their failure, but the failure at the Bay of Pigs, it pretty much legitimized Fidel Castro's power. Right. And after Bay of Pigs, he was in charge. And um, we can ask and question, and many have, as mm -hmm. to why certain decisions were made. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, come up with a thousand different reasons. But the fact of the matter is, I think these men fought valiantly. Yeah. And I think they, um, they shouldn't ever be forgotten in Cuban history, because I think they held... Uh, there's a monument on 8th Street, and I go by it all the time. And I never, and never, I never not stop and recognize these men's efforts. Right. Right. Yeah, it's important to remember. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. You have, you Regardless can. of how you feel politically right. or whether uh, the mission was um, at the right time, I think the two men that trained them, the Jacks, Jack something and Jack something, I didn't know we were specifically going to go into Bay of Pigs like this tonight, but um, both of the military leaders, American military leaders who trained these men, two days before the invasion, advised the president's advisor to call it off. They didn't feel the, the mission was um, ready. Right. Um, the men were certainly willing to fight. Mm -hmm. They just didn't feel the plan was going to work. 
and rightfully so it didn't yeah. and whether the president got that message or not uh, apparently he never got that word yeah um, and I think much has been speculated but I think we can all pretty much assume now that the folks like Alan Dulles who was head of the CIA at the time um, essentially wanted the president to get in hot water and the mission to kind of reach that point where mm -hmm. they would have to the joint chiefs of staff would look at the president and say you need us to go in now and the president would look at them and say boys take over yeah and that never happened um and so why that never happened i don't know why they were working against the interests of their own president i don't know yeah there's also uh in speaking to pepito miro who left me some of um jose miro cardona's papers um you know there were conversations with the junta of right before the election where the president made it very clear that there would be no U.S. military intervention. However, that did not include the air raid that took place the day before the invasion, which was going to take out all six or eight MiGs, I believe, that Castro had. Yeah. Uh, they took out all but two, mm -hmm. and they pulled back. They stopped the air raid. Mm -hmm. They stopped the air raid also because there was collateral damage. There were people that were injured, people that were killed. And this was looking bad on the administration. Bad, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. these were American pilots that did that. Mm -hmm. And so he stopped the air raid, and the two MiGs went up in the air. Now, years ago, Castro revealed, and I tend to believe this version, that once the MiGs were in the air, I also, I've also interviewed Rafael Del Pino, who flew one of those planes, and he corroborated his story. He said when they were up in the air, they saw the flotilla coming. They saw exactly where they were, mm -hmm. and they, saw, they started pinpointing exactly where they were coming. The place, uh, Valle Cochino, uh, is a real poor spot because mm. the notion was or the concept was, the plan was that they would land and then, like the guerrilla fighters, go up and link up with a bunch of resistance groups which had been set up on the island prior and they would all go into either the Sierra Maestras, which is a ways away, right. um, and, and form a guerrilla movement against Castro. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, if the U.S. military was going to get involved, um, you have opinions ranging from Alexander Haig, former Secretary of State, who I interviewed on the matter, and she said it would have taken them, in his opinion, two and a half hours to rid Cuba of right. that regime. The other interesting thing, and the final point on that, I think, is the notion that this would have led to a Third World War. If we believe Nikita Khrushchev's memoirs, he states that there was no way the Soviets were going to get involved at that point mm. because it wasn't in their sphere of, in, of interest or, or influence, and they couldn't sustain a battle with the U.S. at that time. Right. So. Right. So it wouldn't happen anyway. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So fast forwarding then back to your story again, Nelda. You said um, you're at the Nuki Auditorium. Right. Our family is there? Yes. Okay. You're how old? Um, three. Three. Three, four years old. Tell us what happens. Um, I, like I said, I distinctly remember the moment that my dad picked us up. Um, it was just, uh, you know, the whole family was there. I remember the reverend from a church was there. Everyone was there, and everybody was, I couldn't understand. Everybody was so in awe that my dad had made it. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize a lot of things. And I remember my mother crying, um, 
none of it made any sense to me. She kept on telling me, you know, this is your father, this is your father. I remember that he looked exactly like the guy in the picture that my mom kept on showing wow. us all those months. Mm -hmm. But none of it clicked, none of it clicked. Wow, it's amazing. So in that relatively short period of time, you hadn't seen him, but you... Right, I, I had yeah. no recollection of him yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, so when, when, when that happens now, uh, Joe mentioned earlier that there was some after effect when, when those men arrive mm -hmm. here and they're, they're with their families and they're, they feel a certain sense of helplessness because they're seeing the country of Cuba that mm -hmm. they fought for go into deeper into uh, Castroism. Tell, tell, tell me what uh, your father did at that point. I'll tell Moses you our, our, our side of it as far as you know our home what it was like uh, every I remember we had an aluminum Christmas tree and would yeah. put one of those pinwheels color pinwheels yeah and it was like three feet tall and I every year we were saying daddy we want a, a big we want a real tree we want a big tree and every year every year it was don't worry el año que viene en Cuba le voy a comprar el abuelito más grande so next year in Cuba every year we're yeah. going to get next year in Cuba you're going to get the biggest Christmas tree yeah, you're gonna, yeah. we're going to have the biggest Christmas tree in Cuba mm. and every year it was the same story and every year went by and we still had that little three foot aluminum Christmas yeah. tree wow so it was a, something that I grew up um, in the shadows of it's you know this was only something temporary. Yeah. I always believed that this was only something temporary because this is what my dad told me. Yeah. Next year we'll be in Cuba. Next, my quinces, my quinces. Mm -hmm. I'm is. I was like ten years old when your my father. 15s. Yeah, my sweet fifteens. My dad kept on telling us, no, no. When your fifteens come around, we're going to have the biggest party at Tropicana. We're going to do your quinces at Tropicana. Wow. And I, I believed it. My quinces was going to be at Tropicana, and it came and it went. Yeah. That's interesting. I remember my sister, um, who came with my parents, with our family from Cuba. They, uh, she was, she was a year old, I think, and and she there's there's audio cassette recordings of her singing the uh, Cuban national anthem, and I remember hearing her sing it. I was born in 1970. I remember hearing her sing it and wondering, wow, my parents never really taught me that, and it was because at that time they still had that. It was it was close, and they had the hope. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, it was like, no, this is this is where we are. And they had just kind of given it up. They had assimilated here, and they they gave in. We weren't uh, we weren't allowed to speak English at home. Yeah, we had to speak in Spanish. Um, my dad would bring us books in Spanish. It was by the time we got to about twelve or thirteen years old that we finally started speaking between my sister and I English at home. But we, if my dad caught us speaking English at home. We'd be punished. Yeah. No, aquí hay que hablar el idioma de nosotros. Hmm. Now he he. You said how many times was he the the president of the seven of the times? Seven times. Seven times. Um, he so through the seventies as well. He was he was yes. president. Yeah. Okay. Through the early seventies. Yeah. So what what was what was he doing during that time? What was his role? What was his involvement? As far as there was always the planning of. The invasion of Cuba. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I had mentioned to you earlier, I grew up in a house where in Florida where we had a basement, which is not normal for Florida, but we mm -hmm. did have a house off of Northwest Third Street near the Orange Bowl that had a basement. In that basement, there were bazookas, there were hand grenades. As a kid, that was normal to me. I thought everybody had that, and my dad's instructions is you can't play down there. Yeah. And he, I remember he had a padlock on that. Mm. Don't go down there to play. But when he would open it up, 
I'd see all this ammunition, all this, you know, all these things wow. preparing for the attack. And to me, it wasn't a big deal for me. It wasn't a big deal because I thought that was normal. Yeah. I thought that was normal. Yeah. So. So it was also there, there was a there was kind of a role that he was playing because I, I mean, I've seen different things. I've read we you and I never really talk about this stuff, but um, there was a role that he there was a role that he or or an identity that he had as being kind of a centrist or something or he wanted peace or was looking for peaceful resolution or something like that but you you you're tell, you're painting a little bit of a different picture right he well he was he wanted a peaceful resolution but he didn't want any kind of peaceful resolution as long as the castros were there right um in the 70s we had peaceful a group, transition of right. power yeah. there was a group of people that did go and travel to cuba mm-hmm. and they were demonized when they got back over here because they had gone and sat down with Fidel to talk about a transition to democracy in Cuba. And I do specifically remember um, uh, people yelling and talking terrible about these this group of people that went down there right. and they actually sat down and spoke with the beast mm-hmm. they spoke with the beast these have to be traitors and they were treated as traitors they were completely blackballed here in miami yeah. to the extent that many of them had to leave miami right yeah. right that was an interesting thing about miami even up until recently and maybe even today that there's uh, that people don't understand they, they there's a there's a demonizing of the cuban american community here uh, because of the strong position and the strong stance, but it's it's almost as if, um, and I'm just speaking off the cuff here, but it's like the two Cubas idea. You know, we have this there's there's Cuba here and Cuba over there, mm-hmm. and um, and and the, and the Cuba here feels like it's real Cuba. Yeah. You know, this is not this is not no this is we we are Cubans. I mean, I'm Cuban American born here. And I feel a sense of like nobody can tell me I'm not Cuban, and that was because of my parents and our grandparents and and them fighting as if no, we're we're fighting for it from here, we're fighting for freedom from here because it's important to us. It still means something to us. You know, we we don't want to let it go. So that's that's a that's very interesting. Um, I had a very interesting excuse, uh, a real interesting experience. I went to Cuba in 1999, and um, here in Miami. Anybody ask? I'm I'm Cuban. If you travel to Cuba and you left before 1965, you can go with an American passport. If you left after 1965, you have to go with a Cuban passport. Yeah. So I get to Cuba. I present my American passport. They ask me, when did you leave here? I said, well, I was two years old. It was 1961. And the guy says, oh, you're American. And it was almost like a slap in the face for me yeah. because I said, in Miami, I'm Cuban. Mm-hmm. Now I come to Cuba and you tell me that I'm American? Yeah. It was just a, a total shock for me, a total shock. Yeah, yeah. It's uh-huh. like an insult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A rude awakening. Right, mm-hmm. right. So during that time, um, he's uh, you, you're, you're growing up, you got rocket launchers in the basement of your house. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Normal. Yeah, and you have these characters coming over in and out, you know, and, and not just characters, but people coming into your house and they're they're having conversations with your father. That was nightly, nightly. That was nightly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was oh, I mean, uh, so what was going on during that? I mean, was it was it was it just it was it all about like we're going to try to mount an attack or, or what, what were they were they strategizing? What were they talking about? Yeah. The conversations, like, you know, I was a kid. I didn't know what was going on. I did know that there was constantly, as long as my father was alive, there was a constant stream of people coming coming to my house. Mm-hmm. All the conversations had to do with Cuba. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything. Uh, like I mentioned before, we would go to meetings. My earliest 
recollection is falling asleep on my mother's lap, listening to people, you know, yelling, Viva Cuba Libre, Viva Cuba Libre, you know, el año que viene we'll be in a free Cuba. Mm -hmm. These are my early, this, is, this was my childhood. This was normal. Wow, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, and, and during that time, um, in the 70s, Miami was kind of out of control, too. There was a lot of, there, were, there, was, there was some <laughs> stuff going down in the streets. I, there are reports of, of over 100 bombs going off, uh, you know, people being uh, attempts, on, on, attempts on, on people's lives, actual assassinations taking place, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, uh, what, what was some of the events that were leading up to um, kind of, because uh, obviously our, uh, Jose was assassinated in front of his home. Right. Um, um, what, were, what was going on during that time leading up to it? Do you know anything about the tensions that were... I remember, um, oh wow, bombings were like almost a weekly thing back in the 70s. Uh, there was a magazine called Replica. Yeah. I don't know how many bombs they had placed because they, the community felt that they were pro-Castro. Right. Um, there was also specific people that were targeted. There was uh, um, De La Torriente. Mm-hmm. He was a friend of my dad's. I remember going to their house. It was an elderly couple. Very, uh, his wife was, uh, her name was Hilda. One of those things that I never have forgotten. She was a very elegant, elderly lady. Always wore wore pearls. Hmm. And Torriente lived in Coral Gables. And I remember going to his house. And I remember there was a very big window, in the living room that faced the front street. And uh, that's where he was sitting the night that they killed him. He was sitting by that window and they shot him and killed him there. Wow. Elias de la Torriente. And it, a lot of people like that. You're growing up and you're listening to people getting shot, getting And what was bombed. the motive behind that one in particular? Do, do, was it established? Was it known? Yeah, de la Torriente had a thing called the Blanc Torriente. Torriente, which was an invasion plan that supposedly was being backed by the U.S. government. Um, from all I know, uh, there was a legitimate, in his mind, there was, I think the CIA was running a kind of faux plan to see who they could bring in. And and then once the plan really didn't start taking shape, a lot of Cubans felt that Torriente was taking the money. Hmm. And um, and indeed, the money was never found. Ah. Um, supposedly he had a lot of money stashed in his home and the money was never found. And there were always rumors about who actually took that money uh, yeah. once Torriente was murdered. But I think it had more to do with people who were very frustrated and, uh, and felt that maybe he had betrayed them and taken their money. There's really no evidence of that. Uh, his family didn't live in opulence. They didn't. Um, so yeah. I think the poor man was just killed in vain and wow. horribly. Yeah, yeah. So we, <coughs> excuse me, we have all these stories. Um, and... Um, there's there's CIA connections. There's uh, there's uh, you know uh, Alpha. What was it? Alpha sixty six. Omega seven. That came a little later. Yeah. Los pragmatistas. Never heard of that one. Yeah. yeah. What were they? That was another group. That another was involved in bombings and mm -hmm. things in Miami. The pragmatists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a good name, I guess. Get a job. Get it. Get the job done. What What did? Uh, but again, this was all because there. None of. Uh, how many of these bombings were? Were any of them coming from Cuba, or was it all mostly from here? Well, we don't know. Yeah. Right. To I mean, this day, we don't know. Some Some of these agents. Some of these guys could have been running. They could have been double agents, triple agents. Mm -hmm. A lot of these men had connections to. Um, KGB. Uh, I'm thinking of a guy in, in particular, Monkey Morales, who was yeah. a noted uh, terrorist, 
and criminal. Probably one of Dade County's most noted criminals. Monkey Morales. Monkey Morales. Uh, Ricardo Morales, Morales. Navarrete. Um, was involved with the KGB, the Chilean Secret Service, uh, the DEA, the CIA, the FBI, um, and just Cuban intelligence. So he was the Venezuelan intelligence. Um, when Posada Carriles becomes, takes charge of Venezuelan intelligence for Carlos Andres Perez, the president of Venezuela at the time, Monkey Morales had just gotten out of jail and prison, and he brought him over to Venezuela. Now, interestingly enough, in 1968, Dr. Orlando Bosch fired a, uh, oh, yeah. a, a, a bazooka at a Polish freighter that had come right. from Havana. And uh, Monkey Morales was interestingly the lead witness against Dr. Bosch. Hmm. When Bosch leaves prison, uh, he goes to Chile, where he marries a Chilean woman, uh, but Pinochet wants no part of him there. Um, and he has to leave Chile. He goes to Venezuela at the behest of um, Posada Carriles. Mm -hmm. And the man who greets him at the airport is none other than Monkey Morales, the <laughs> same man who testified against him in U.S. courts. So, see, wow. uh, this is all muddied and muddled. And, and I think that's um, part of what the Cold War was. And so we don't know who these men were working for. I can tell you that there is significant evidence that Cuban intelligence was all over Miami hmm. and had infiltrated many of these organizations. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. It was a time that was very difficult to tell who were the good guys, who were the bad guys, because the good guys were bad guys, the bad guys were good guys. Right. Yeah. So it depended. You couldn't tell who a lot of shades anyone's, of gray. Yeah, hmm. who was where the allegiance was, because someone that was your friend today was the same guy that was going to come tomorrow and kill you. Mm. Yeah. I think what's, what's, you know, before we move on more with some of the historical stuff and some of the stuff that happened, but I think it's important to note some, some of the stuff uh, Nelda was talking about. It, 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 um, I try to put this out of my mind as much as I can, the, um, the emotional hurt, I think, that families <laughs> lived through at the time. Yeah. And it's hard to hear these stories. I mean, you're hearing... When I hear Nelda talk, I hear that little girl talk. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, you know, you're talking about a girl who remembers her father for the first time coming from a prison yeah. um, and greeting him at an unknown place and, and all these horrible things that these families had to withstand. And, um, and so I, I wrestle with how do we honor now as Americans, because I think at best we're Americans of Cuban descent, all of us. Mm -hmm. um, we feel an allegiance to this country. This is where we grew up. This is where right. we've, we've, we've known what we've known. However, we still have, I think, a responsibility to honor some of our legacy and our history. Yeah. And so how do we do that? Um, and I think part of it is not forgetting. So I think things like uh, telling the stories um, is important, passing it along to your children. I know your daughter's here tonight, mm -hmm. and that's very important. I commend you for that because these are stories that she'll one day tell her children and right. your grandchildren um, long after we're all gone. And these, these things can't be forgotten. There was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Um, yeah, there were people involved. I mean, there were human families, beings, there were yeah, children. Human and, beings. Yeah, and yeah. I think the horrors that uh, Nelda lived and her mother and her sister and her family, um, I, I think, can never be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there, there's, there's you know political aspects and who's who and who was a good guy and a bad guy and right. all that. But I always try to remember the human element and what these people withstood and lived through. And, and uh, all four, and uh, after... 
devoting pretty much my whole adult life to studying Cuba and Cuban history and Cuban politics, I, it comes down to this. I, I always say I'm on the, my parents and, and I landed on the losing side, if you want to call it that. Right. And 10 out of 10 times, I would choose the losing side. Because for the most part, they stood for honorable things. Mm-hmm. And so I'll lay my stake with Juan Jose Peruyero any day of the week. Regardless of mistakes he may have made or not made, mm-hmm. I lay my lot with him yeah. and those men and those women because they stood at a time when, um, which this is also an unpopular thing to say. I mean, by then, exile must have had at least 100,000 able-bodied men, yeah. 1,400, 1,600 volunteered. Um, I applaud those 1,600 men. Yeah. Um, yeah. they, they took a lot of courage. They risked their lives. They left families behind. Um, so I think in remembering that is incredibly important. And yeah. I think as Americans now, um, we can still honor our Cuban ancestry and history yes. by remembering that. And I also believe that the losing team will one day prevail and maybe will win out at the end in that what's just is just, what's right is right. I believe we're on the right side of history here. It's going to take longer than any of us ever wanted. We never wanted to see our parents pass. I've lost both of my parents, all of my grandparents. Um, But I want to be there for that day. And it's not the day Fidel Castro dies. No. That's not a celebratory day for Mm me. Um, A celebratory day is when the Cuban people can have an election and live in a semblance of democracy, for God's sakes. Right. That's a day of celebration. Yeah. And I think it's our duty to at least witness that. Right. And whether we live in Cuba or don't live in Cuba, I think it's kind of unrealistic to think I'm ever going to live in Cuba. Maybe. Who knows? But um, I think it's important to stay involved and stay connected and, and certainly learn about our history. Right. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I felt it was important to do this now that because you know the stories need to be told and and i thank you again for for coming and doing this and um and i think it's very important that we leave that legacy for our kids i talk my son knows everything that happened i talk to him all the time and he's slowly talking to my granddaughters about it yeah and i I think if nothing else this is what we need to leave to let Mm -hmm. them know you have to admire this these men that were willing to sacrifice everything for the country yeah. and did sacrifice everything and to this day the ones that are still alive still have that strong conviction that tenacity that what they did was right and they had the moral I would say high ground mm-hmm. in this whole thing okay history may portray them as okay they lost this battle they lost this they lost their country but Morally, they were the ones that were correct. Right. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And they were willing to sacrifice everything for yeah. it. Yeah. So, Nana, tell me, uh, go on with the story of uh, your father, and do you, do you feel comfortable talking about Yeah, it's a, like, that day? Uh, it's things that, uh, to me, so now that I'm an adult and I look back and I see what my life was like as a child and I realize that, no, this wasn't a normal 
mm-hmm. when you're your, your your granddaughter's age, pretty yes. much. Mm-hmm. Did your granddaughters play a role in that as you become a grandmother and you begin? Did that trigger anything? Yeah, it, 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 I see what is normal, and I, I realize the that's situation. a cigar lighting, by the way. That sound. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, yes, it's Torch captured. Sound. It's captured. It's. Um, I can't imagine my granddaughters growing up in a childhood like I had that where strange people, strange men coming to my house every night to meet and talk with my father till hours of, all mm-hmm. hours of the night. I would fall asleep at night listening to the, the murmur of their conversations yeah. because it would become one long mm, as I fell asleep. Oy, 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 yeah. Oy, oy. yeah, the murmuring I, I, in the background. When I was a kid, I thought every time we spoke, my parents spoke about Cuba, it was like at that point in the party or the gathering, or the it was like, oh, no. <laughs> because they all spoke very loudly. Yeah. And yes. I thought they were arguing. Nope. I thought the men and and even the women I mean, pitch. I mean, yeah. yeah, I thought it was arguing. Then at some point, somebody would cry. Yes. Inevitably, somebody mm-hmm. would cry. And remember, this is the 70s. This was so close still. Mm-hmm. And it, they, it was very dear to their hearts. And they still felt very, very strong very about it. Very emotional about it. And so we are the byproduct of that. So mm-hmm. we saw those tears. I mean, my grandparents... I very vividly remember the the um, my parents became citizens in 1976, the bicentennial year. Nice. There's an episode of Capasa USA, yeah, that I mean that episode is etched in my heart because it's Pepe, mm-hmm. you know, the whole Peña family becomes or Juana Shit becomes pain. a citizen and Pepe refuses to, and he says, you know, Juana, maybe I will someday, but for right now. I'm going to continue to save this bottle. Well, there was a bottle in the yes. back of my fridge. There was one in my house too. Decades. Mm-hmm. And so in 76 my parents became um citizens and that Nochebuena is the last Nochebuena that I remember my entire family being together. All my cousins, all my uncles and aunts and everybody was together. And I remember a dual reaction. I remember them all being very sad. We we would they would literally pray in the family prayer. There was always a mention of Cuba. Yeah, that's how deeply rooted this was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I also remember that because nobody had three cents. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Catholic Church where I grew up, Santa Cecilia and Hialeah. I mean, there was community, there was unity, mm-hmm. there was brotherhood, there was cooperation amongst us, among us all. Um, that slipped away in time, I think, and it, it gave way to other interests and other things. But to me, I remember it was a very pure time when these people were at their rawest moment and perhaps at their most vulnerable moments. And I, and I will forever, those people's pleas and cries and, you know, anger. Yeah. You can't forget that ever. Yeah. Um, and I talk to my sister all the time about it, like um, the day so and so had un yeo and you know yeah. had a, <laughs> a fit, and he almost had a heart attack right at a family gathering. And in fact, that night, my father was the guy who had the yeo, and he picked up the family, and we went home hmm. because there was a big political disagreement at the table. Yeah, and my father was on the younger side, so they all the older men looked at him and said, "What do you know?" Yeah. And he was angry, and we stormed off. We never had a family Christmas again. Hmm. That was 76. That was 76. Um, and I run into cousins now, years later, and, uh, and wonder. Like, why? What the, happened that night? <laughs> well, not just what happened that night. The ancillary cost, what is it? Um, 
just collateral damage of what had transpired in Cuba in 1959 and what yeah. ensued, the development or evolution of the revolution, mm -hmm. was we've all paid a very high price. Yes. Mm -hmm. All of our families mm -hmm. are marked. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know how you recuperate that. Yeah. I don't know that any of us had a normal childhood. I, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and I see her life. Yeah. And uh, it triggers stuff in me. Uh, uh, I think of that age, and I think of just uh, the constant angst, sadness, struggles, both to adjust to life in this country, yeah. but to stay in tune with what's going on in Cuba, because that was important. So um, I think that was that's something that will always stay with me and I'm sure Nelda and it's our duty I think to pass it to our children and our grandchildren and hopefully they'll really see the fruits of it because they'll see a different place 90 miles away one exactly. day I, yeah. I, I am a firm believer I have faith I oh, think yeah. I think they will yeah I know that for me for uh, I I would say it was 1977 our family yeah. changed and completely yeah, and I mean, uh, I said earlier we we haven't talked about this, but reality is, is no, that we we barely talk. Yeah, and that's been the way our family has been since since then, then. since seventy seven. My dad was like the nucleus of the family. Mm -hmm. Everything revolved around him. He was the the support beam to the whole family. Yeah, and once he was killed, everybody kind of drifted off. Yeah, amazing. So, it just wanted to tell us what uh, if you if you're okay again on that, comfortable on that day, with it. Um, yeah. I was in school. I was at Miami Senior High School, and I was in my typing class. I, and I remember a friend walked in with a slip and gave it to my teacher, and I thought, wow, he got a, a slip so we can skip school. And he walked in, and he tells me, look, your dad has been taken to the hospital. He has chest pains. I'm going to take you to the hospital. Okay. So we, um, he takes me over to Jackson Memorial Hospital. My dad was on the third floor. As the elevator's going up, it went first floor, second floor. They had fixed it so it wouldn't stop on the third floor from ground. So it went first, second, fourth, fifth, sixth. Then it stopped again, six, five, four, and then I start screaming in the elevator. It finally stopped on the third floor. The elevator doors open, and a nurse comes out, and she asked me, she says, are you Peruero's daughter? And I said, yes. All of a sudden, my sister, there was, I looked and there was all of my dad's friends were there, all of them. And uh, my sister comes running towards the elevator door. She says, they're going to lie to you. That's not true. Daddy's dead. Daddy's dead. And I looked at her. Mind you, I'm thinking my father had a heart attack because they told me he had chest pains. Mm -hmm. um, I walk out and they take me to a room where my mother was at. My mother was absolutely hysterical. Uh, this was January of 77. April of 76 is when uh, Emilio Milian had a bomb placed. Right. After Milian's bombing, my mother every single night would drive my, car, my dad's car into our yard, our fenced yard, so that nothing yeah. would happen. Right. So when I walked in, my mother was yelling, I took such good care of him. Con tanto que lo cuide, lo cuide y mira lo que le han hecho. And I'm sitting there thinking, Mommy died of a heart attack. What are you talking about? So none of that made any sense. I couldn't understand why all these people were there. My dad had had a heart attack. Why are all his friends here? What's going on here? I mean, the place was packed. You couldn't walk. There was maybe 50, 60 people inside this small waiting room. So the next thing I know, they put me in somebody's car. 
we drive to my house and we couldn't get to my house because the city of Miami police officer said cordon off the front of my house. My dad was shot in front of my house. Um, but still, I was under the impression we were in the car, nobody's talking, we're all crying. I'm still under the impression that my dad died of a heart attack. Mm. When I get there, a city of Miami officer opens up the car door and says, are you Peruyero's daughter? I said, yes. He said, look, we found the casings. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, the casings from the gun. I said, what are you talking about? My dad had a heart attack. He said, no, honey, your father was shot and killed. Mm. And I looked at him and I go, no, you're wrong. And he said, no, I'm right. Your dad was shot and killed. And that's the moment that I found out what had happened. Mm. Wow. We stopped at a, since we couldn't get to the house, we stopped two doors down at a neighbor's house. And um, my neighbor, Miriam, as she and I would play together. She and I went to the backyard and we sat back there. And I could see my backyard and I could see my dad's friends carrying things and hopping over the fence. Mind you, the perimeter was set up in the front or the crime scene was set up in the front of the house, the front, the street, but nobody had gone to the backyard. What they were doing is that in the basement, which like I said, that to me was normal. We had bazookas, hand grenades and everything. And they were taking all that stuff out. Yeah. It didn't, even at that moment, it didn't, click with me that this was not normal. I saw them taking out the stuff. I said, oh, I guess they need that stuff. And it didn't click that this, what was going on. Yeah. And even at my dad's funeral, um, when I saw the thousands and thousands of people that were there, they closed down 8th Street. Uh, the Rivera Funeral Home was mm -hmm. maybe three blocks away from the cemetery. Right. They closed down 8th Street because they figured out that it was easier for, to have everyone walk down to the cemetery mm -hmm. as opposed to everybody try to drive down there. And um, the craziness of it all, my, the first funeral I ever went to was my dad's. Mm. My dad didn't let us go to funerals. So none of this made any sense to me. And I remember asking my mom, Mommy, when are we going to go home? No, 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 we're going to spend the night here. I'm, I'm thinking, what's going on? Is she nuts? We did spend the night there. And um, when we went to the cemetery, I remember looking back out of the limo window and I could see our cousins walking back there and um, all this huge mass of people walking behind the car. Yeah. And I, it, it, none of it made any sense to me. Then we stopped uh, when we got to Woodlawn Mausoleum. There was a little hill, or there's a little hill to get to the mausoleum. And um, Jorge Mascanosa delivered the eulogy up there. And we were standing by him and I remember looking out and seeing all these people, all these people, and I'm thinking, how do all these people know my dad? Because to me, as a child, my dad was my dad. Um, yeah, my dad had talked on the radio every now and then, he was on TV every now and then. And, yeah. But it, it, you don't, as a child, you see your dad as your dad, you don't see as the world sees him. You don't mm -hmm. see his role outside of the house. Right. So that was, you know, I was 16 years old, and that was still a shock to me to see all these people there. There was also a lot of um, cameras, a lot of news crews there, and I couldn't understand why it was such a big deal, why, you know, my dad was killed, but why are all these people here? It was about three months later, I was at home watching TV, and they had a documentary about the bombings and the shootings that had occurred in Miami. It was an English um, company that had made this documentary, and... They showed my dad in the casket, and mm. 
at that point, I don't, I couldn't even remember at the funeral home looking at my dad in the casket. Yeah. And it was at that point that it hit me. It was like, my dad is really dead. Because for a long time, it, um, it just seemed to me that my dad had gone away on something and he would be coming back. Right. I remember being in my mom's car and we were dying, driving down 22nd Avenue and 8th Street. We were going southbound and we got stuck at the light on 22nd Avenue and 8th Street. There was Casablanca Banquet Hall there. Mm-hmm. And I saw a man crossing 22nd Avenue and I thought it was my dad. Mm-hmm. And I remember running out of my mom's car, crossing like a maniac down the street, chasing down this guy because I was sure it was my dad. I was sure my dad was going to come back at one point or another. Yeah. So it was a, a real shock to me to see him in the casket that they showed this on TV. Yeah. yeah. And that's at the point that it finally hit me. This was, you know, maybe uh, a year later after my dad had died mm-hmm. when I saw that it was like, my God, he is dead. Yeah. So it took a while. Yeah. I remember just going back to the whole family change and how, how it alters, you know, certain events alter the family dynamic. I remember I'm seven years old yeah. and I'm home with the chicken pox. I remember that day, and and uh, I remember my grandparents came over, um, and I forgot who else was there. I think Rogelito and some cousins came over, and and uh, and they they were telling me this that that this had happened, and that day without not to get into that, but it, there were that day marked almost like the last time that I saw a lot of our family. Yeah, you know, so I would then after from that point on I would see. My grandparents, I would see a couple of the you know the smaller cousins, uh, but we we stopped going to Little Havana. We didn't mm-hmm. live in Little Havana. We lived out west, and we stopped uh, really you know from that moment on. It was like the if the if we saw our tias, our aunts, it was or or you guys. It was at a wedding or at a at a funeral at a funeral yeah. or um, a, a, a birthday party maybe. Um, but it was it, everything kind of just started falling apart after that point. Yeah. Um, what transpired after that? You, you, how old were you when that happened? You were sixteen. You were sixteen. When did you decide to go into law enforcement? Well, I went into law enforcement when I was um, twenty-four, twenty-five years old, mm-hmm. and that was always in the back of my mind that I would somehow be able to have the connection to be able to figure out who resolved it, my dad's this case. This was an unsolved yeah. it's, it murder. It still is to the day, till yeah. today. It's still in, classified as an unsolved murder. Mm-hmm. But um, it's everything changed. Like you said, everything changed that day. This um, rotating door, this revolving door that we had of people coming into my house, that stopped when my dad died. We had one specific friend, Pepe Febles, that all of a sudden took control over my house, him and his wife. Mm. I still don't know, and my mother doesn't understand. My mother was in bed for three months. My mother didn't eat. My mother lost like 55 pounds. She refused to eat, refused to get up for three months there. She was lying in bed, so it was like being almost an orphan there for a while. Mm. But we were being controlled by this couple, uh, Gelsi and Pepe Feules. And... um, they obviously knew my dad from before, but I didn't know them from before, and they practically moved into my house. They, if his wife wasn't there, he was there, but they were always there. They would, they would determine who would come to my house, 
who could not come into my house, um, who could who we could talk to on the phone, mm-hmm. everything. I, I still don't know what his role was in that whole thing, but it was very obvious. This and this went on for nearly a year. He, this man, determined um, who my mother could talk to right. for a very long time. Who we could talk to. Who was he? Did you ever find out who he was? Somebody that knew my dad from before. I have no idea. Mm. It wasn't somebody that would come to my house regularly because I didn't know him. Mm. He, as a matter of fact, his wife is the one that drove me home from the hospital that day. And from that, from that moment on, they took control of my house. Wow. As a matter of fact, one of my uncles, Tio Braulio, was kicked out of the house by him. Really? Our family was, no one was allowed in there. He controlled everything. He and his wife controlled everybody that came in and out of my house for a year, for a little over a year. And I asked my mother about that. She won't talk about any of that. She won't talk about any of that at all. Wow. So I've always wondered what that was all about because it was just very unusual that these people popped, as in my view, popped out of thin air and took control over everything. So you got into law enforcement. So I got into law enforcement thinking that, you know, I I could make connections to find out about my dad's case. I've tried and I've tried... um, I've always gotten stonewalled mm. in one way or another. And I've had people tell me, I've had, as a matter of fact, um, from Janet Reno's office, I had a state attorney told me, this is, the tentacles on this, on your dad's case are much longer than you'll ever know. Oh. And uh, really, it didn't, you know, didn't make any sense to me. It's like, you know, my dad was murdered. You guys, that's your job. Find out what happened. And with time, I've realized what he says because... Every time I've tried to get the investigation going, it goes nowhere. Really? Things have disappeared. The Cadillac, the guys that were dri- who shot at my dad were driving a Cadillac. That Cadillac was impounded by City of Miami Police Department. The Cadillac disappeared from their lot. Wow. Um, they had found a jacket inside that vehicle. City of Miami didn't have a um, forensic unit that could check out the, the jacket which now, if we could have it, maybe we could get some DNA or something mm. off of it. Uh, the jacket has disappeared. It, they handed it into the city of Miami in January of 77. Um, Miami-Dade police processed it and gave it back to the city of Miami in September of 77. Then it disappeared. Well. And a lot of things, a lot of the evidence have disappeared completely. Mm. Completely. The, the ammunition that was left over, the casings that were left over, have disappeared on an open homicide case. Mm. Wow. So. Now, you had opened the, the case later on, correct? Yeah. yeah. I tried a couple times. Um, I even had uh, FDLE got involved there for a while, and mm. nothing. It's just, it gets to a, a point where they get stonewalled. They can't get anywhere. Yeah. They can't get anywhere. We're still, like I mentioned to you earlier, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I got a phone call from a city of Miami uh, detective, homicide detective, a cold case squad, and he told me that they had gotten a phone call from somebody who's in prison in California that wants to talk to a detective about my dad's case 40 years later. Wow. And I'm still waiting to see what happens with that. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, originally, there were nine case files on my dad's case, nine boxes that I physically saw with all the interviews and everything. Right now, I think they're down to like five. They're just gone. They're gone. They're gone. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So the tentacles definitely are... Exactly. There's a lot of people still alive in this city that have something to lose. Yeah. 
and that's why it stays that way. Well, Joe, you have anything you want to interject on that? Um, my uh, knowledge of the Perrieto murder happened uh, through an investigation that I was working on with Liz Barmaceda, former Herald uh, columnist and reporter, on the Minian bombings. It's important to note that Juan Jose Perrieto, a, a few weeks prior to his murder, a few days actually, yeah. had been in Washington, D.C. Emilio Milian told me that he, Perrieto had called him and said, Emilio, we have to speak. I have information regarding your bombing. Hmm. And Milian says that Perrieto was very, very, very um, agitated by it. Um, by the time we went in, this is circa 2002-2003, Miami homicide. The nine cases that Nelda's talking about was now already down to one box on Peruero, two on Milian. Um, certain detectives that worked the case told us that um, the FBI had deputized some folks and those cases, those, um, all that evidence was then taken by the FBI and removed from city of Miami. We also had reports that people had poached those things, whatever was left by the FBI had been poached over the years. Hmm. Two men were identified in the murder, the Peruero murder, uh, Valente Hernandez and Jesus Lasso. Um, the eyewitness was your front door neighbor. Maria Handy. Maria Handy said that um, she saw Juan Jose approach the gold Cadillac, which was the property of Valentin Hernandez. And uh, she described Peruero was wearing a the traditional kind of wife beater undershirt. So he was ready to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Because of his involvement in some of these things, and because of the Miliang bombing and other bombings, Peruero was armed at all times. He came out to talk to these guys in the car, according to Maria Handy's testimony, and she said it looked like uh, an argument ensued, but amongst friends, amongst people he knew. He turned around and started walking back away from the car, Mm -hmm. and he threw his hands up like in kind of not in agreement with these guys and he was shot um the city of miami uh homicide unit investigated the state's attorney's office investigated now we physically saw an investigation by the state attorney's office where they hunted or they were trying to find these men who were on the lam in colombia then in puerto rico uh, by Hank Adorno, uh, mm-hmm. who was working for the state attorney's office. Mm-hmm. Hank Adorno has since um, lied about it, said there was never any such investigation. Um, and I can tell you he's lying because I saw his reports firsthand. And um, these men prior had committed other crimes in Miami, so it's very, very interesting how they can come back to Miami with full immunity, seemingly, and murder somebody again. Yeah. Uh, these men had assurances from someone. 
Um, it doesn't take an investigator. Nelda is a professional law enforcement person, and she'll tell you. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a law enforcement person to figure out that they must have felt that they had some kind of immunity, that they could come back to the city where they had killed other people and And commit a crime again. Now, Jesus Lasso apparently went into witness protection and died of cancer. Valentin Hernandez was arrested on other charges and served some time and is currently out of prison. Living in Naples. Residing in Naples, yes. Mm. And... um, I mean, you know, you can speculate, but clearly this had connections to U.S. government and CIA uh, all over it. Wow. Yeah. But in keeping these crimes uh, from being prosecuted, they did a great, a great disservice and certainly an injustice to the families. Uh, both the Milian family, who almost lost Emilio, I mean, it blew his legs. Right. Um, and the Peruero family, who actually lost Juan Jose. And because, um, you know, to not have an answer knowing who actually perpetrated the crime. Yeah. And to think that the U.S. government had any involvement in this is a pretty sickening thought. Yeah. And so we were very deeply involved uh, for many years. And uh, to the point where you just want to stop thinking about it and stop investigating because it all leads to ugly answers. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the sad the sad reality is, uh, Emilio Milan lived a very tough life after the bombing, and Juan Jose Perriero lost his life in 1977. Right, and as as did other people in this right. ta- during this time. And none of those cases, none of those none cases, were ever resolved. No. Mm-hmm. By the way, as bombs were going off in Miami, the state attorney's office under uh, Janet Reno prosecuted a scant few cases. Uh, I remember one of the guys, I forget his name because I've tried to forget his name. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to forget a lot of this stuff. But one guy was the uh, mad bomber, they called him. He, he used to have put bombs in like um, the mail, the postal offices. Right. And you do it at night, and they apparently weren't very effective bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, she prosecuted and arrested the mad bomber, who was just some crackpot loon. They were just dud bombs, is that what it was? Yeah, they or? weren't very... Yeah. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I remember he's also in, involved in the Air Jamaica bombing, which, um, because mm-hmm. Jamaica had flights to Cuba, they... Um, we interviewed uh, law enforcement people um, who were pretty certain... They got their men, and hmm. they've told me time and time again. They also told me to stop hmm. <laughs> yeah. in no uncertain terms, just stop and walk stop away. Looking. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know. Yeah, so back then, um, you just reminded me, they were, they were targeting travel agencies. Yes. Right? Uh, that were doing any kind of travel. With Cuba. With yeah. Cuba. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of bombs going off. And, and uh, there, was, there was one... I forgot which one it was. There was one that I remember hearing about that was on Flagler or something like that, or Northwest 7th Street. One in particular. No, no. Anyway. Yeah, I, rem- I did remember the name. Yeah, there was, uh, but it, it was got over, bombed several times. Yeah, when it was over 100, you, you, you kind of, yeah. the stories get muddled It together. was like every Friday there was a, either yeah. a murder or a bomb going off. Every yeah. Friday. They used to start calling them what, uh, Bloody Fridays or something like that. Yeah. In New York City, too, right? Wasn't there some stuff going down in New York New as Jersey, well? Union New Jersey, Union City. New Jersey. Uh, the Noble Brothers out of New Jersey... Um, 
and Virgilio Paz Romero, and I forget the other gentleman's name, who actually killed Letelier. Mm-hmm. Your Chilean, uh, uh, Chilean ambassador, ambassador, Allende's ambassador to Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Chilean DINA, which is their state security under Pinochet, um, a lot of these men trained uh, in Chile, uh, brought to Chile by Pinochet, they t- they've told me, Vigilo Paz Romero told me on camera that he was made certain promises. And essentially it was, you do for me and I'll do for you. And you kill for me and I'll kill for you. And um, he trained in Chile, came to the United States, back to the United States. And they bombed uh, Letelier's car, killing Letelier. And his uh, secretary, Ronnie Moffat, who was an American woman. Wow. Um, and... Um, you know, no. This was uh, this was before Joseito, right? That was, was after. after. It was after. Yeah. It was oh. after. Uh, the bombings continued. Yeah. Mm. Now, what happens in 1980 is interesting because uh, obviously Mario Boatlift, Ronald Reagan. By the way, inter- interestingly enough, the head of the CIA at the time was George W. Bush, the father, mm-hmm. George Herbert Walker Bush. Right. He came to Miami at the end of '77 into '78, or maybe before then. And uh, had a meeting, a very secretive meeting at El Retorante de la, la Teja. Yeah. La Quina de la Teja. Yeah, Quina de la Teja. Uh, yeah. Where he, they closed the restaurant and they brought in several uh, ranking members of the Cuban exile community. And so the theory is that, that a lot of these folks who were connected to the CIA prior, the CIA was essentially telling them, okay, this is it. We're having no more of this. Um, and then I've had folks tell me, well, that's interesting because they taught me how to play ball and then they took away the bat and the ball wow. and said, you can't play anymore. Hmm. And a lot of these men were trained to kill. Yeah. Um, and so um, they were still fighting whatever war. Who knows who was spurring them on and how much Castro influenced these men. Then drug trade starts in Miami. A lot of these guys right. were now supporting their patriotic work with uh, a little part-time jobs with the dopers serving as security right um, for the colombian drug dealers and the cuban drug dealers as Mm -hmm. well um and so it's all get it's all get it all gets very muddy but what happens is in 1980 the cuban american national foundation begins to take root macanosa leads the cuban american national foundation and with Ronald Reagan's election, Cubans now had an end to the White House, and it was going to be a different kind of warfare. They were now going to lobby politically, and uh, they were in good stead with Reagan, and Reagan was going to help us uh, de- you know, depose Castro um, politically uh, and otherwise. And the skeletons of the past, which had not been solved, there were no answers, everything was brushed over, and it was a thing of the past, and nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. had moved on, right? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and yet these families new were left. Yeah, these families were left with no answers and dead relatives. Wow. You know, I find it really interesting this uh, what Joe was just saying about how he was told to leave it alone, mm-hmm. because in 2006 I went to see um, a very well-known politician at the time and um, on a different matter, and he knew that I was um, bringing up my dad's case uh, to see if they would open up uh, or investigate the case again and check and see what things had happened. And we were talking about something else, and he looked at me. I was in his office. He looked at me. He says, listen, I know what you're doing. I know that you're investigating your dad's case. I like you a lot. 
leave it alone. And mm. I looked at him and I said, would you leave it alone if it was your dad? He says, Nelda, leave it alone. Wow. And he was supposedly somebody that was on our side. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy, man. That's insane. Wow. Well, I have um, to end on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, two things I wanted to share. It was in 1977 that as a seven-year-old, I uh, developed an interest in Cuban history at seven years old because I started thinking, what's going on here? And I had the same reaction. To me, he was Joseito. Exactly. Um, and then suddenly I see a magazine. I think it was Replica. And uh, there's a big spread in it, or the newspaper. I don't know what it was. And it was the, the 2,500 people flooding mm -hmm. down... 8th Street to the cemetery. Macanosa giving a speech. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, and then my mom telling me stories. And that's what sparked, that event sparked my interest in my heritage. And um, I, I, I always, I've always seen him even to this day as a larger than life person. It was cemented later on when I was working at Sears, <laughs> Sears in Miami <laughs> International Mall. I was a cashier, I was in high school. And this old black Cuban man comes up and he's, he's buying some hardware stuff. And he had, you know, this little guy had rough hands. And he says to me, yeah. <laughs> and he was, his, uh, anyway, he, uh, he comes up and, and he says to me, he, he pulled out his ID and it was a 2506 brigade member ID and I'm like you know because I asked him for his identification he goes well here's my identification he threw it at me and and I tell him and I said wow I said that and I didn't know much about it back then I was in high school and I said wow that's my uncle was the, the president of that and he goes who was your uncle and I said Juan Jose Peruyero and he starts crying he just breaks down and he says your uncle and, he, and he's like convulsing you know all the memories I guess flooded in and he just shakes my hand and he holds it and he says, your uncle was a great man. And then he tells me a story. He goes, did you ever hear a story about a tiburon? Did you know this story? No. I don't know if it's true or not. So, Joseito was a cop in Cuba. Mm -hmm. In Santiago de Las Vegas. In Santiago de Las Vegas. And, um, and uh, apparently there was some guy that back then, this is before the revolution, had been bad-mouthing. He was a town drunk. This a, some big dude. And he was in prison and he was bad-mouthing Joseito. This is a story he told me. And the story went on that uh, he, he, was, he was threatening Joseito. He was going to beat him up and whatever. And Tiburon gets out of jail. And Joseito says, in front of some people, says, and confronts him and says, tell me now what you were saying about me in prison. And he beats the crap out of him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my dad. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that's a, that's a great story. That's a great That's one to remember. But um, we remember him uh, for, for the... the father, the, the uncle, the patriarch that he was yeah. in the family. 